The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. So welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. My name is Ben Rock. And I'm Ilya Friedman. And we're here at Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California. The Cinematography Podcast is uh, its something that Ilya and I have been talking about doing for going on about seven years now. Yeah, that's right. Seven years ago, I remember you walked into my office and said, hey, I think it'd be really great if we started this podcast where you and I just talked about you know, cinematography and we brought on cinematographers and other people who had like, you know, a real opinion about cinematography and we just kind of talked about all the changes and interesting stuff that's going on. And I said, what's a podcast? What's a podcast? So, <laughs> so, so, so what is the cinematography? Podcast? So six or seven years ago when I went in, you were working at Dalsa, which uh, no longer exists as a, uh, as a cinema camera company. No, they sure uh, don't. at the time they were pioneering the largest cameras known to man and very successful at coming up with the largest digital cinema cameras around. In fact, I don't think anyone made one larger. I I found that their cameras affected the tides. (laughs) They did have their own gravity, that's for sure. So the idea that I had back then, and and has been refined a bit now, is that uh, we do a podcast where we talk about the art, the craft, the philosophy of, of the moving image. So it's more about where the ideas come from, where cinematographers come up with their ideas, color palettes, lighting styles, uh, approaches to the actual work, collaboration with directors, collaborations with storyboard artists, uh, collaborations even with actors or, or any, any other craftsperson. Less of an emphasis on tech. I'm sure you and I will talk a little bit of, a little bit of tech because that's your stock and trade here. It's probably inevitable, but yeah, that's not going to be the focus. We're going to talk to a lot of cinematographers, but we'd also like to talk to uh, storyboard artists and visual effects artists and people who are, are contributing to the moving image in significant ways. And I feel like we're coming to a point of convergence when you have movies like Life of Pi or Gravity, where the visual effects bleed so heavily over into the what is captured in camera. Some movies are pure camera, and some movies kind of combine different elements in interesting ways that can't not be called cinematography, but are kind of informed by numerous disciplines at the same time. I'm interested in talking to just about anybody who's got a real uh, informed uh, opinion about cinematography and can can speak about it intelligently. I, I like to hear people who um, have a real opinion about what's going on or how it's being done, and I, I'm less concerned about their job classification. I think that uh, I think that we'll we'll get some really good people in here who have an opinion and are willing to you know uh, kick the ball around, so to speak, and you know maybe we'll have some people who completely have a different mindset than than my own or, or yours and uh, maybe we'll get some some good conversation about this which is at least that's my hope yeah uh, certainly my hope as well and one of the reasons that I think it's important that we talk about the art and craft and philosophy of the moving image rather than the technology of the moving image firstly I think that there are plenty of people out there who are making amazing podcasts including Jason Wingrove that covered the technology and the technology is fascinating and we both talk about it all the time and it's a huge source of fascination for everybody but I would like these interviews to be something that could be appreciated by, you know, in, in 20 years when we're not even when we're shooting on something that you, you and I can't even conceive anymore, 
somebody talking about their approach to lighting or the way that they like to work with an actor or the way that they look at the story and figure out the visual arc of the story. That stuff is evergreen, in my opinion. And I'm hoping that we get a lot of that, a lot of stuff that is food for thought for people who maybe want to make their own movies or are making their own movies or are people who are already in the business and hearing a completely different perspective. Because even in the few interviews that we've already conducted, once you start talking to people, you realize that everyone has their own process. It's always very different. And it's fascinating to see how you take a script written 90 to 120 pages of words and the pictures that you see in your head when you read it and then figuring out how to go about getting those pictures. How do you do that? I got to say, I've been talking to a lot of people lately who have a very different experience of my own, which was uh, started off as a cameraman, uh, came up uh, through the ranks as a loader, second AC, first AC, and eventually uh, camera operator and DP myself, who have just jumped into this and don't necessarily have the same disciplines or foundations that I had coming in. And they're making beautiful, beautiful, amazing, amazing images on a daily basis. It used to be in the past that you couldn't just jump in and you couldn't do this right away. It it was, you know, cost prohibitive. There was um, a real sort of mentorship that needed to take place. You had to learn your craft either through schools or through sets or from other people. But uh, I'm really interested in talking to people now who are coming at this from every different direction because, uh, you know, the, the floodgates have opened. And, and some will say like, oh, well, it's let the riffraff in. But it's also let in some incredibly creative people. And those incredibly creative people are finding their way now to making uh, amazing images. And they're doing it in, in traditional ways and very non-traditional ways. I, I think that the Cinematography Podcast could be a wonderful way to hear how these people are going about doing what they're doing uh, from a philosophical standpoint or from a creative standpoint. Not necessarily that I, I, I plugged cable A into tab B and that I used my amazing arc fusion reactor camera, which <laughs> then uh, captured these amazing images and we put them up on a big screen and everyone applauded. So that's at least that, that that's that's my hope for what we'll be getting. Absolutely. And another thing that we're going to do in every episode is tease the next interview using a war story. So we're asking uh, the cinematographers who come in to talk to us to give us a crazy story from the set, a turning point in their life, an extreme moment where things all came together. And we'll have our first war story in this episode, and you'll be able to hear that. We'll also do some short ends. Some uh, personal obsession of the week or the month or whatever. Things that uh, you know are actionable by people. I, again, I say stay away from... I'm, I'm personally going to stay away from tech. Um, although my first one is an app. (laughs) I can't make that claim. I think that that's probably the spot that I would talk about something tech-related, although uh, I think uh, for this first episode, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, something completely non-technical, at least uh, it'll just be uh, something that you can go see and enjoy and and should see because I think it's probably the best movie this year so far. So we want to bring in some really interesting people, and to start us off, we brought in uh, Jason Wingrove, who's the co-host of the RC podcast, which is one of my favorite uh, camera podcasts of all time. Used to be Red Center, and then uh, at a certain point they broadened it out, and and it wasn't such a Red-specific podcast because they realized they were talking about the Alexa and the 5D and whatever. Still technical, though. It's very, very tech-based. It's all, for the most part, it's tech. They they veer into the creative, but Jason Wingrove himself is uh, a very creative guy, started in the camera department, moved up to cinematographer, moved up to director. And he often directs NDPs at the same time, which I've always wanted to talk to. I want to talk to people like him because as a director myself, 
I can get an exposure and I can shoot and I'm not, you know, I'm not terrible at it, but like, he's a phenomenal cinematographer and a phenomenal director. And I always wonder, how do you, how do you make those two parts of your brain work at the same time? That's not as easy as it sounds. He's also a hell of a nice guy. And it was really great to, uh, to, to have him come in and to sit down and to, to chat for a little while. But I think that we should also really point out that it's now, uh, this episode's being recorded, or I should say that, that you and I are speaking in December, 2013, and Jason Wingrove came in to speak with us in uh, April of 2013. Yeah, so. didn't even come in here. We met with him at the National Association of Broadcasters Convention, uh, otherwise known as NAB. Uh, ben, I think you actually asked him a lot of great questions, and it was a lot of fun, I think, because uh, on his podcast, he doesn't usually delve into all that stuff about himself. And uh, at least... I, I don't believe he does. He's there mostly to talk about the state of the art in cameras and how he intends to use them. And he inevitably talks a little bit about his creative process. But when you look at uh, Wingrove's work and you, you know, you go to his website and see the stuff that he does, it has a really striking and awesome look. It, it, it oozes a, a, a certain vibe that is, you know, all its own. His, his stuff is uh, really, style. He, has a style. he has a great style. And, uh, and I think that being that he came up as a cameraman, he's got a, a great insight. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jason Wingrove. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here at NAB 2013, and I'm talking with director, DP, former focus puller and camera assistant extraordinaire. Renaissance man. And one of my favorite podcasters, uh, Jason Wingrove. Morning. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bright and early morning here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and we're in a uh, kind of a makeshift recording situation in a hotel. A better place to be in the middle of a huge trade show is mm-hmm. be locked in a hotel room, <laughs> <laughs> sitting on the kitchen bench. When uh, Ilya and I talked about starting this podcast, one of the first people that I wanted to speak with was you, not just because of your expertise in cinematography and directing, and you know we want to we want to create something that's more about creative process and, yeah. and somebody who has both skills. That's humongous. Additionally, as a podcaster, I feel like you've touched millions potentially on uh, on the rc podcast which is an amazing podcast um and we're not going to really cover the same kind of ground that rc covers which is mostly technical so if you want to know uh, mr wingrove's technical interests i would redirect you to that but do tell us where can people find you online if they are looking for your work okay probably wingrove.tv is my sort of main website i guess for work follow me on twitter at uh, twitter.com slash wingrove that's probably where my sort of 140 characters at a time a substitute for a blog mind dump, <laughs> brain dump um geek fest uh unravels i guess but uh the f- main thing is probably uh yeah wingrove.tv or jasonwingrove.com actually i think you probably go to vimeo.com slash wingrove slash seapool is maybe another way because we'll be talking about that later on absolutely just start by just giving me your backstory you grew up by pinewood studios was it uh yeah in in uk born there and moved to australia when i was 12 but uh i i was trying to work out what why i was had this sort of interest in the behind the scenes or the making of or whatever it is and i think it might have been because i used to every year at pinewood studios where we used to live quite close we used to go to the they have an open day and just as a child you know you're playing with these prop they just leave all the props everywhere and there'd be like the 007 huge 007 stage but i think a few times you'd go in there and there'd be the the superman ice ice you know his sort of 
the Fortress of Solitude or whatever they called it, you know, the huge masses of polystyrene and, and big rocks you can lift up and props and just, it was just fascinating to see this kind of world and I think maybe that stuck with me and then, yeah, when I came to uh, Australia, my father was uh, working in like the movie side of things so I would go and hang around on set as well and then, uh, yeah, straight out of high school into film school and straight out of film school onto onto set. Never had a proper job really and... <laughs> Still working out what the hell I want to do with my life. What did your father do? Uh, he was a stills photographer in London, and he did art department, so production design. And then you know quite a few big films, and like Mosquito Coast, and uh, uh, you know a few um, quite big big films. And Australian classic Australian, you know, eighties kind of period, a lot of period films. So, um, and that was kind of my um, foot. I could just go and hang around on set, and eventually someone. You know, I kind of gravitated to the camera department. Spent about uh, 12 years on the camera side as focus puller, camera assistant, and then kind of realized that that wasn't really where the creative, you know, on the path to, you know, being a cinematographer, which, you know, is part of my, you know, you can't undo that kind of gearhead kind of thing and the visual side of things. I think... I kind of circumvented the, in film days, which isn't that long ago, circumvented the uh, cinematography side of things and skipped to director because it just was, I think it was just the more creative avenue. I could st- I spent a lot of time sitting on Apple boxes next to DPs, having them whinge about the creative frustrations. I mean, now, you know, being director, it's, it's, it's really no different. There's creative frustrations wherever you go. But at the time, it certainly felt that as a director of photography, you were still very largely subject to somebody else's cre- creativity and you were more the follower than the leader. And I guess I just was more, you know, uh, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to do the, you know, the directing thing, really. So, but obviously you do the DP thing as well. I've come back to that through the through the wonders of digital, I think. Where I started in terms of directing was more drama, kind of things more spoken word performances the actors doing performance and which is quite intensive and uh, very focused and i think the added stress of not just directing but working out timings and dialogue and cutting it in your head and all the usual baggage that goes into your brain when you're on, on on set as a director the extra added stuff of the film stress of rushes not seeing what you get exposure meters printer lights stock choice ice you know all that sort of stuff how much film have i got left all those extra choices really are best left to a cinematographer so i generally didn't shoot my own work in the film days but as i've got more into the digital side and the stress of wondering what rushes are going to be looking like tomorrow because i can see them on set now you know in front of me uh it's much less so i think and also I think I just, after 12 years in the camera department, I just can't leave it alone. I just can't get my hands off the camera. And I, I feel very, uh, in, even if it is dialogue, even if it's an intense performance, I feel very much more connected with the performance if I'm just watching through a viewfinder or, I don't know, somehow connected with the operation of the camera. And it just sort of connects me more with the performance and you know, what's going down, I think. So when you're DPing, I take it you're operating as well. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, definitely, it definitely. It's I mean, maybe for interviews, I might sometimes just have somebody uh, 
um, operate. But um, I think as things have evolved a little bit in the kind of whole Vimeo and the digital thing, you kind of, there's this whole crossover between that kind of Vimeo kind of doco feel is kind of proliferating into everything we do indie films are feeling a bit like it commercials are definitely looking like getting a lot more like sort of doco or reality based i think that 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 uh, that style is very much driven by the camera and camera movement and framing and light and things and i just i just get a little frustrated sometimes even working with the best and no disrespect to the cinematographers i'm working with they're all terrific but um I sometimes find the frustration of I just I want to constantly be saying just pan a little bit more to the left or just just do that or just I just so frustrating sometimes of the immediacy of not um, uh, of getting framing right or seeing something and wanting to um, I'm wanting to frame for it and sometimes as a as a director you're watching for different things outside the peripheral of the frame than you are as the camera operator, you know, or a cinematographer, you're kind of thinking outside of, you know, plots or little moments or little asides or, you know, somebody else, you know, just doing a little flinch or a reaction or something, you know, something other little thing you can catch that as a uh, cinematographer, you might not be story-wise or plot-wise attuned to, but as a director who's looking through, you can kind of, and can it also helps you kind of cut, you cut it, in your head I mean you're always as a director I guess cutting things in your head as you go but uh, I think all the more so when you're looking through the camera you can st- you're almost building the shot you can kind of you already know the pacing of this thing I'm talking I suppose couching all of this in the sort of TVC kind of mode I suppose where things mm-hmm. are a bit more rapidly cut than than features but I guess this applies to any format you're already someone who kind of knows the pace and how often you're going to cut and you kind of get an idea of of what you're after you edit always editing in your head as you go so watching through and being in control of the framing is is another way to control the edit as you go if that makes sense i think you can kind of you can do put camera movement or focus pulls or um even just rocking your body or something and just and and finding and you kind of you know what it takes to make a scene or to build a scene or you know so if if something happens that you think is interesting b-roll while you're doing the a-roll you you know you're you're right there and it's just a lot easier sometimes to communicate rather than feel like you're interrupting the process all the time by tapping your cinematographer on the shoulder and saying oh grab that bit oh that grab that bit and you kind of feel like it's much less efficient process than just oh just give me the camera you know (laughs) so i mean it's it again it depends on the project and depends on the demands and if there's really intense even now with the direct digital stuff if, if it's really intense if it's intense or it's working with kids or a really tight schedule or a actor director relationship intensive um project then well, let me, let then i'll then i'll leave it to a cinematographer I'm, I'm i'm interested uh in in this is a question that i always wonder about guys who direct ndp at the same time which is how do you bifurcate your brain properly so that you can pay attention to the performance and the composition, you know, yeah. that you can be fussing about like, oh, that that backlight's flickering or something like that, and also be like fully in the performance. I think that's a good question. I think you definitely, if I'm looking through a viewfinder, you definitely get a bit more immersed. You're much, I think, a bit more present to the scene. So you naturally are paying almost, atten- you're, you're almost like at 120% attention, I think, 
by looking through the lens. So you are able to give, you can give 60% and 60% if that makes sense. Because, um, yeah, I think you're automatically just that little bit more switched on than if you're sitting back in video village, 20, you know, 12 feet from a, from a monitor with your latte in one hand and your iPhone in the other and, you know, surrounded by, you know, creatives or producers or script people. I think just being right there with your eye right in there really commit, you know, even better with an optical viewfinder, you are just so you're right in the middle of the scene connected with it and so thus i think you are and i'm thinking about this as i talk because i've never actually even thought about the why you you know this answer before uh you kind of are just that more locked into it that you can look at that light and look at the you know the performances and things a little bit more i think so again it if it's that intense with performances i probably won't look through because uh yes the flickering light will probably drag my attention away i do not know how someone like steve soderbergh does it because he does insane beautiful photography and and sensational performances but i think when you're into his level you've got a higher level of actor and you can almost put two a-list actors in a room and give them a script and it's a gift you know you know cinema directors always get up on on, on the stage and accept their awards and, and you know the first probably the first people they always thank are the the actors because those are the ones that we've all worked with kind of bad actors and we'll work with really good actors and you just know the joy that the two people if they're really working together and they are doing they're on their a game that is just like gold every day you can walk in terrific one take two takes just love it because they are highly skilled professionals and you can leave them to it you can leave the director to do the directing you leave the actors to do the acting and you know if if you've got really great guys you don't need to really be hammering them with notes and doing multiple takes and all that sort of stuff you know so i guess as the stakes get higher the people around you the professionals around you are all working at their aim a game as well so you can kind of kick back a little bit yeah. and just enjoy, enjoy the process rather than making it a battle. And I always assume that somebody like Steven Soderbergh or uh, Peter Hyams or somebody like that who does who do feature films that they yeah. DP and direct, yeah. I always assume too that they probably have the best gaffers that they can have and yeah. those and, gaffers could probably DP the film too. And are really exactly right. The best gaffers are the ones that have got your back, particularly if you're shooting. My favorite gaffer in, in Australia is a guy called Reggie Garside and he works on... Uh, he's done he does Hobbit and he does pretty much all uh, Andrew Lesney's work who shooting uh, Hobbit and King Kong and all those sort of things and he is he will do stuff in the background without even asking or have something ready before you even ask for it I'll be looking out the background thinking that light that's that got darker out there and he said oh yeah no I just I put a scrim up because the sun came out and I didn't even ask it doesn't even interrupt the process it's just you know so yes I think you're right those guys that are really good at it, like you say, Hyams and, and Soderbergh, who uh, I think they have got like a gaffer who are probably could tomorrow turn around and, and, and be a cinematographer. You know, they, they, they've worked with it so long and they are thinking for you and they know where your head is at and they know what you're probably going to be not thinking about. So, yeah, absolutely. You pick the right guys that have got your back. I kind of want to get this from from everybody, uh, every every cinematographer that we talk to. I realized once that two of my good friends who are cinematographers, one of them was talking about how his lighting is kind of a perfunctory thing that he does. And for him, it's all about the composition. And the other guy I was talking, and when I say perfunctory, he's a perfectionist, but he was being modest. Yeah. But to him, the most important part of it was the composition. And he had a fine arts background. 
another DP who I'd worked with, even though he'd come up through the camera department, the number one priority for him was lighting. Is there a camp for you? Do you come from it from one or the other? Is there one thing you pref- not prefer, but are you lighting a shot and then finding a frame for it? Or are you creating a frame and then lighting into the frame? I... Uh, I'm a sort of a real sort of naturalist, so to speak. That doesn't mean I like to take all my clothes off. <laughs> I like to, I just love, uh, very much like Soderbergh, you know, he will only put in pracs and interesting things, but he will he will choose his locations based on how they look straight out of the box. He'll choose places that look great with minimal lighting. I just think regardless of how much the audience knows about lighting, which is probably nothing, and the audience subconsciously can sense if something's lit or if it's natural and if it's real. I'm all for whatever adds realism to the frame. And if it looks, if you can make it look beautiful, but look honest, then the performances come across as far more honest and come as far more believable. And you, you buy into it because you believe the scene because you, this does not look like Hollywood's come to town, you know? So I will, Ideally, I will not light things. I'll actually take away light, you know, like actually, you know, block stuff off or, you know, anti-fill or reflect things in rather than actually put a uh, a lighting source in. And if I'm asking, if I am getting a, a, a cameraman to, to light for me, I'd suggest that we put lights. If you've got to add light, put it through the windows. Don't put any lights in here. Put lights coming through this exact holes in the walls where the light would normally come from anyway. Yeah. So we're not tripping over stands. It's a very natural place to work. It's, you know, you're not working around 50 C stands and fleckies and, you know, that kind of thing. So I think I'm probably choosing in locations off the bat that look great. Then the lighting is kind of almost taken care of and you get that inbuilt realism into the scene and then you can work on performances framing i'm not like crazy anal retentive like art student kind of this must be this amazing kind of you know kind of <laughs> um you know millimeter sort of tolerances for, for for the framing and headroom i like you know just inch i like interesting unusual kind of framing and playing with focus and playing with perspectives a little bit but it's more for me it's about get the light right and get it so that it looks beautiful, but you buy it as a, a piece of reality, but also a piece of film. I'm not trying to do a doco. I just want uh, I want whatever helps sell the performances in as being believable, and then the, you know the the rest is is will, will follow. And and in a lot of your work uh, that I watched, uh, and also you know it even says it in your bio that you do a lot of a lot of work with real people, not non actors and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the process of working with people who aren't used to having mm. stuff pointed at them and having to yeah. perform? Yeah, it's it's really hard because everyone's everybody's different, and and particularly with 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 kids that do a lot of like it or lump it you kind of it's, you know it's like with you with your reel or with your work you kind of get what you give you get one good commercial on your reel or whatever it is with kids in it you get more you get given more of that and before you know you turn around man my whole world's filled with how did this happen my reel is filled with kid stuff yeah. and i'm the kids guy and i didn't even <laughs> i didn't ask for this and then but, you make moving day <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly but um uh, kids i don't know it's more about getting them to react rather than act. I have a feeling, I have the sort of theory that there's no such thing as a child. I mean, there is occasionally like there's exceptions, like like absolute savant kind of amazing, you know, born to act DNA kind of kids. But I think there's no real thing as a, like a child actors. There's 
there's just kids who have no inhibitions and who have great memory and you know it's 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 definitely a numbers game it's hard to find those great people it's all in the casting for a start you know i mean it's not you don't choose any old kid necessarily and make it make make them be great but it comes down to you know choosing kids that um uh, just have have confidence and you know they're not really acting they're kind of reacting to things i think even if you're choosing non actors and you're choosing just real kids then it's all about giving them something to react to get in the scene with them get down on the floor and play lego with them and be their friend and and you know build up a bit of a relationship uh, and it's all about sort of playing games and i think if you're going to direct kids it does help them maybe you have had them so, you know it's kind of child manipulation really it's it's all the kind of manipulating them to get whatever whatever that look is even if it's a matter of sometimes just look at me and just you go and stand where the other actor is meant to be and you you be the face and they just look at you and just say just do what i do pull this face do this reaction and you can almost just play this game just keep the camera rolling there's another reason why i love direct digital cinematography just keep that camera rolling mm-hmm. and then just do a whole bunch of reactions to them and just <laughs> and just get stuff fed back it's all about reactions it's very hard to get a child to um actor or non-actor to to really just pretend when you can actually give them something to bounce off and it's far more genuine and i think that i guess with with grown-ups real real non-acting grown-ups i think it's kind of in a way a sort of a more sophisticated and less insulting version of the same thing yeah that you're asking people to um you know maybe ask them to think of something or think of an emotion or 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 or, yeah to react to something i think it's important to not get them to try and do something that they're not you know don't make somebody try and be a personality that they're not i think if you're looking for someone to inhabit a certain role yeah or to be a certain character just start off with that character you know cut you know if you if you're casting non-actors so to speak yeah just if you need a kind of a dweeby something guy then find a dweeby guy you know don't get a regular guy and try and say can you act a bit dweeby you know mm-hmm. i think you want to you want to um or a sophisticated guy or put an accent on don't try and force someone to <laughs> to go out of their comfort zone real because then you're asking them to act yeah avoid yeah. asking real actors to add accents exactly too. exactly so if you're trying to get real people to be real people you know then then you choose them for that role and don't make them be something that they're not and then you won't get acting you'll get get reacting i guess yeah, it's more natural. That sounded pretty. How did that sound? That, sound? that, that was a, that, that was, was convincing. That sounded like I know what I'm talking about. It does sound like you. Yes, <laughs> you totally know what you're talking about. You know, so you were you were saying earlier that you when coming up in the camera department, you'd had a chance to work with a lot of different DPs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, can you tell me who any of them were? And even if you don't want to talk about specific names, can you tell me about the kinds of lessons that you learned from working with all? You know, like yeah, I, I think it's interesting from a point of view if if somebody was interested in becoming a cinematographer to become a, an AC so that they could work with as many different DPs as humanly possible. Yeah, I think yeah. So obviously the key there is to observe and and what's it's if you the key to doing it for long enough as in any role I suppose particularly uh, what I think is probably one of the toughest jobs on the set is like say focus puller is to do it long enough so that what you're doing as a conscious job becomes subconscious. The director I'm thinking of who I've I've, I've worked with mainly as a a camera operator and a focus puller and who I probably studied and I think I kind of took on board mentally the most from is uh, 
Australian guy who's probably not all that familiar to Americans, but uh, he's like, uh, you know, pretty iconic for Australians. It's a guy called Ray Lawrence who did films like uh, Lantana and Bliss and Jindabyne and very Australian stories. But his style is very much that uh, all about the performance. You can almost maybe not even cut, just have an entire, oh, very Soderbergh-y in a way, but natural mm-hmm. light. A lot of the time, even though I was the camera operator, because he had so little light, I was often the cinematographer by uh, you know although not necessarily the uh, the un- uncredited cinematographer <laughs> by sheer fact of i could just work at you know just work the light meter and set it roughly and and uh putting up lights was kind of like taboo you just again find the find a good location and if you did have to do something and then it would be put a reflector out the window and you're just putting it very very minimal he would do what i find myself now unconsciously doing now is walk around and kick lights out or or say no (laughs) get rid of that or you can have one if you need a light you can have one you know because that's where you know don't normally have 15 shadows and 10 light sources in in a room it generally comes in from one side and so i think ray was his style was that it didn't even if you were shooting a 30 second commercial you didn't really care about how long a scene ran that was that's what editing was for and it was he kind of wanted chaos and it's very much like that sort of actually that spielbergian thing where the average spielberg family breakfasty kind of et scene was everyone's talking over the top of each other and there's no real like real life you know this yeah. it's ne- le- life is not structured like you say a word and then you say a line and then you say a line and then you follow a script it's it's deconstructing that whole process and making a scene feel like it's playing out and you're everyone's seeing it for the first time and it would we would also it would always roll in rehearsals there was never he would never he never says action he would just you know he would just nod at us and we'd just switch everything on and he'd uh, he will never say action to the actors he'll just say which i love to try and remember and it's, it's, it's just a nice way of saying it you just look at the actors and you say in your own time and we'd often not get slates or we'd do tailboards and stuff. Anything that kind of took away that 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 moment of tension or that whole bit of filmmaking bit of yeah. of, of, of the slate coming in. You know, you just Do you was, work like that? Is that how you Yeah, definitely. So and don't, I don't even call. realise that I'm doing it that way. Uh-huh. Is that I think that was again my part of what, what put I pushed to get digital to shoot digitally before it was even very much i think now subconsciously like sort of did he was like grab the first prototype red camera whatever before it even was you know paint was dry on it (laughs) and and um because he would just uh want to have the unrestriction of of not being limited to 10 minute takes or to have the frustration of even though they're fairly quick not doing camera reloads or there's a certain subconscious onset tension when everybody knows that a photochemical process is happening and they're limited, you know, like the 36 shots is, is in the magazine and, and, you know, you've got to make them all count. And some yeah. actors thrive on that and some, and some don't. And I, as I pref- love the idea of being able to improv a scene or while everyone's while it, you know you kind of lose momentum doing that sort of whole stop start it's the stop start thing you know yeah, you yeah. really just want to for me anyway 
once you've done a scene and it's great and it's really starting to work and the, once the actors don't worry about so much about the process of it they can relax and interact more as people and you know you can once they've done a, a shot really well you can just say okay just do it again but do it differently or, or why don't you try it or just reverse it or you but you know um and once they feel once actors feel that it's okay to make a mistake mm -hmm. it's okay and it's that it's that kind of a set you know we can be relaxed we uh, a fluff or a little tiny stumble or whatever is fine because that's what people do in real life yeah once actors sort of feel that it's okay to make a mistake and the tension of getting it right and getting it perfect and getting it in time and getting it done in 27.2 seconds because that's how long we have for this particular scene once they feel it's okay to be themselves then they start to even themselves stop acting and start being mm -hmm. a human interacting with another human being and then you can have that talking over the top of you and improving because i'd love to i mean i don't want to you know turn it all into some amazing improv kind of comedy store thing but improv really means that you know if there's a better way of saying the words at that time or if you don't quite remember it then just say it a different way yeah you know or or pause from it and then think of your words and then say it, it doesn't really matter once they you want to sort of i feel have a atmosphere on set that is relaxed so everybody doesn't feel that this is a five dollars a second yeah film going through the mag god better get it done before we rip through another roll of film tension making <laughs> process you know so i think I that's totally probably agree. what i've learned most from from someone like say ray is the un the deconstructing the hollywood coming to town moment and making everyone feel like they're just at home and that comes from minimal crew too no lighting we're not tripping over set stands and you know reflectors and the room isn't filled with 15 people all staring at them and all standing in their eye line and all that sort of stuff it's really very minimal that's why i was the guy the focus puller was the guy taking the light readings you could kind of get out of your own way you know that's cool because i'm hearing a sort of a pattern emerging in in your process creatively which is to get everything the hell out of the way of the actors and to make it more of a dialogue between you and the actors mm. uh so cinematography wise directing wise like in everything that you're doing you're, you're just trying to make the actors less less self-conscious i guess it's a conflict thing that i don't like sort of confrontation or whatever i just or tension i just like it to be a relaxed set and i don't i don't like to feel pressure and i don't like to feel pressured I don't like it, so I don't know why they would like it. You know, every time if you ever have to stand in front of your own camera, it's a horrifying thing. I think every director should probably try acting for a while, and mm -hmm. you know, just you know, the shock of that is enough to make you you know really think about things. So, yeah, I think it's all about setting up the right atmosphere on set. I think, and just and just making it a fun place, you know, and the, where everybody feels like they can come and come up to you with the what ifs you know yeah. plenty of time i've had the scene improved by even just you know what whatever my camera assistant or my first ad you know once everybody on set feels like it's okay for them to come up and suggest stuff then then that's all you're all the better for it and you have to be the the the, the better man and, and let or woman and let let make it okay for people to it's part of collaboration you know if you're a complete auteur 
don't even approach me, don't even look me in the eye. I have my storyboard and I'm going to tick off my stuff and I know exactly every single frame and how it's going to play out. Then everybody, no one, they would dare even even suggest anything. And then you all you get is your own process. You're not open to mm-hmm. how things can possibly be better. You know, there's no point having uh, an an editor. You just want if you're just going to just go tick tick off the storyboards. You want someone to collaborate. You want ev- everything. There's a um, you know, I, I think I love the Ron Howard way of collaboration that he just surrounds himself with, you know, the very best people in every department, and you know, and he kind of he's there worrying about you know plot and <laughs> character arcs and and script and that kind of thing, and everything else gets taken care of. So when you're talking about kind of creating this, you think it's fair to call it like a naturalistic look and a collaborative environment. I know that every set is different and every shoot is different, mm, yeah. but what's your ideal size crew to work with? I mean, you can have as many crew as you like, but it's keeping them off the set, you know, in a way. For a run and gun kind of pretty pictures with a bit of dialogue and things, I'd, I'd probably have a me shooting, camera assistant, stroke DIT person. Maybe if you're shooting a lot of data, that would be two people. Probably a boom person and a sound person. If you're running and gunning, maybe they, again that's the one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, I think even if you go minimal, I think I still love to have a first AD, even if they are not directly there calling action and coordinating things. Just a person to have your back, to just make sure people are ready when you need them, or to be start thinking about the next shot and you know the next scene or also if you just see someone walk past you that's an awesome face i need that person go get them they can just chase them down and you know and and be like the guy to kind of kick in the doors and take the names and then probably you know there's the back end of a couple of production people to you know again just type loose ends and sign release forms and you know, just generally make sure that there is uh, an, an excellent espresso machine <laughs> wherever you go. <laughs> um, I mean, In LA, I, we I, just have a Starbucks yeah. on every third block. So, yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. Now I'm talking about coffee. <laughs> <laughs> What's this Starbucks you're talking about? You um, mean the one that's right in front of you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not by choice. Maybe that might grow a little bit for for a bigger dialogue thing, but um, yeah, generally. But would you say that you, that you tend to prefer to work with a more minimal crew, if yeah, possible? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's harder to change your mind if you've got this big bus to steer. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the big cargo ship. You got to make the decision to turn the corner yeah. two kilometers in advance. You know, I think you just want to be a bit more nimble, and I mean, it's maybe probably more more my style, which is a little bit more uh, run and gun, maybe, and a little bit more natural. Well, I think that a lot of times you get it in your head that you need a large crew to work with. Yeah, and digital has certainly helped. I remember even when I was in film school, like I was in a film school where we were encouraged to work with like a thirty-person crew, mm. and then I went, and that was actually that was like before i went to my bachelor's degree when i the place where i got my bachelor's degree ucf you would work with three people and i was like it's never going to look any good but we're shooting with you know the same cameras or mm. similar cam you know 16 mm. millimeter 16 millimeter and yeah you realize really quickly well if you can get the results with a smaller crew 
why trouble yeah. yourself with why, why put you know ankle weights around your ankles yeah I mean this is not any golden rule I mean there's terrific there are, there are massive crews and people mm-hmm. who love to surround themselves with a lot of people who still have the easily have the ability to change their mind and, 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 and go in different directions and follow the what ifs I've just never found that the case for me that I, I feel that that's smaller is is better but you know it's it, it depends on the people that you have around you you know you know you just need to have the support of, of, of everybody that if you do change your mind you don't have 50 people going hang on a second our schedule's shot because you just changed you just shuffled the board and everything yeah you know you want somebody to have you back and make it okay you either you either have small amount of people that it change doesn't matter yeah. or if you are going to have a lot of people you want people who are going to be okay, open to change, <laughs> shit changes, shit happens, you know, yeah. and uh, you have to be open to once you get immersed in a scene, the better way to do it might just be to do it in two shots. Or if you've planned it as a one shot deal, you might want to do it as five macro shots or never see someone's face or play it all from someone, the back of someone's head or all in a reflection of a mirror or, you know, there might be yeah. a quirky creative way and that until you really, you can scout it, you can board it, you can, you know, you know, I mean, you know what I mean? Until you really are sitting there and wait and forced to wait and sit up against light and up against a pole and wait for them to light it. And you can't until you maybe look over and you go, hang on, it looks cool from this angle. Come over here. Excuse me, cinematographer. Just look, stand where I am. Can you see this reflection here? How cool would it be if it all just played out here? And, you know, if you're changing your mind for the better and everyone's along on for that, should be on for that ride and be happy to make that that change if they can see. If you're constantly changing it just to be a dick or just, you know, and you're chasing your tail <laughs> and you go over here, let's do it all over here. And then you, everyone moves it and you do one take. And then you go, yeah, actually back where it is. And everyone then goes, all right. You know, you kind of lose the kind of (laughs) being a crew person for a while. You kind of really, you know, it's it's, people are behind you. But but if you sort of cock them around and if you kind of be an undecisive dick, you know, then kind of crew faith can, you know, it can be a bit of a movable, you know, a variable (laughs) force, you know. But yeah, surrounding yourself with people who, who, who support you is good if you're going to have a big one. One of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about sort of was your, your breakdown process when you're brought a project and when you're creating your own project. That would suggest that I actually have some sort of process like that <laughs> or, or any kind of structure or really think things through or plan things. That, that comment, that, what is it like? Failure requires absolutely no planning. <laughs> That's kind of how I run <laughs> But sorry, go ahead. Well, no, your like, question, please. No, well, I, well, you know, looking at your stuff, like, you know, your stuff has a really naturalistic feel and a look mm-hmm. to it, but mm-hmm. it's not like a Paul Greengrass kind of a long lens shaky cam kind of do- no. documentary aesthetic. No. You know, like I'm thinking about um, uh, there, on, on your website, there was, uh, I, sh- I should have written down the name of it, but it was that thing where there's there, it's like opening day or something like that, where they're getting into the water and they're putting oh, ice yeah, in the water. Oh, yeah, that's a doco piece, really. Yeah. But and it's, it's like, but it's like all these like, the opening ceremony Epic, of the slow motion, you know, like the, yeah. like, like everything feels super composed, super, like it feels like you planned it, but looking at it, you re- I mean, obviously you planned it, but it, it, it almost feels like you had created it from scratch, but we realize it's, you know, these are real people. So you had to kind of work. It's definitely real people. The idea, and uh, I'm, I'm sure maybe you can, if you have show notes, you can put links in there. Otherwise it's probably just, I'm sure. If we, you will, go to we will, we will be com, you'll, you'll see it there. I think it's called opening ceremony and it's, uh, I've kind of been doing this running little personal project of uh, documenting just the people who go and do ocean pool swimming, which is a bit of a unique Australian thing. But there's a great 
club, uh, a swimming club called Bondi Icebergs, and it's they have every year at the sort of beginning of the winter swimming season, they have this opening ceremony where they grab have chunks of ice, and you know everybody who's joining the club. Uh, grabs a block of ice and everybody jumps in the pool all together but the process of was like his handing out all the ice and all that sort of stuff so i think i had no idea how that i just knew it was on on at this particular day and i just grabbed um a friend's with that had uh, the vice cam like a phantom mm-hmm. and i shot with my epic as well and it was just purely just a doco piece uh, but slow mo obviously just adds magic and loveliness and 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 to to everything. Yeah, <laughs> and, but but, in but general, we didn't know how it was going to plan out. It yeah. was like you know it's, it was chaos, and I kind of had a man in on the spot who kind of knew the club, and he could kind mm-hmm. of say the ice will come here, and then they hand it all out, and then this is. That. But you have to really be open to just there's stuff there that you only just you have them all jumping in the water at a thousand frames a second. You can't do that twice. Yeah, you know it happens, and you know luckily we, we got it on both cameras and. But there is no, I think maybe just good editing, he said, being the person who edited it, <laughs> luckily, uh, maybe good editing makes, it can make something, a whole bunch of shots look like it's had a structure and a plan. But they're literally, the plan was to just, while we're waiting for all this stuff to come out, just shoot some of the, let's set up the atmosphere, just shoot faces and stuff, and then follow the process as a documentary follow the ice coming out follow it being handed out people playing with the ice because there's a while people just holding the ice and kids playing with it and all that sort of stuff and then they all line up and then they all jump in and then they play so it really was just following the natural so, progression of the day so that being like a straight-up documentary more yeah but what a lot of the work that you have reflects what you're saying which is that you want stuff to feel spontaneous you want stuff to look like it's in the real world not the big hollywood thing you're True. not you're not going for that style of lighting, that style of filmmaking. Yes. And and you achieve that. But I mean, is it more about just how you talk to uh, your designers or your, your uh, you know, yeah. your crew, your scouts and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, you obviously can't, particularly with television commercials, you can't go into it without a plan. You can't go into it. You're not even allowed, generally not allowed to go into it from an agency or people paying the money to go into it without a storyboard and mm-hmm. even when i'm forced to do it and i say i don't need a storyboard get screwed i don't want to do it i don't have time and i don't need that shit and when you're forced to sit down and even if you don't have a storyboard artist and you just got the one just doing your own little stick man figures you suddenly realize oh, okay yeah maybe doing your own boards is actually not a bad idea and maybe now i've thought about it i'm going to do it a different way because yeah. the actual being forced into think about the process of planning a little bit can definitely be good even if you don't think you you need to do it just mm-hmm. being made to do it is actually a bit of a voyage of discovery and you go oh actually yeah what if this and yeah well it can get you actually can get you excited about a project if sometimes jobs just come to you and you don't you know, this is gonna you think it's gonna suck and sometimes going through the process of planning it and breaking it down can actually be something that gets you but gets you to like so, like so what is your advice. process? Like if I give you a script. Yeah, I've kind of answered the question really, haven't yeah, I? Yeah, <laughs> well, it's, it's a tough question and I yeah. there isn't like a way people do it. So, I'm, Well, I mean, the average way, at least for Australia, for the process, for the planning for TVC would be, I mean, obviously we would get a script and I have to then 
it's you know three-way pitch generally for they'll give they'll they'll choose three or four directors that would like all your work and are you are you available and do you like this and 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 we had a telephone call and and you 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 can string three words together and we kind of got on please pitch for this job so the treatment writing the treatment process is probably a the most painful but be again like the storyboards it's a forced process that sometimes make you think about it and makes you break it down and makes you sort of start to work out how you do it so probably writing the treatment is the first step to working out what the a b c and d is what the shot because you generally you have to write almost break it down to shot by shot uh, what do we start with what do we open with how does it kind of pan out is it all done in one shot is it in is it is it is it all done in slow motion is it all all just done in macro or mm-hmm. you know break it down to you know a written version of a storyboard and then obviously once you get the job then you can start to do the storyboards i don't like to do the storyboards until i've found a location and the location's approved Mm-hmm. And then you can really look at the photographs you've taken and, and start to think about where is the best place to, to the geography of how to plan this out. I hate doing boards and then we find our location because then there's going to be a better way of doing it or, or an interesting, you know, you might have someone on two other sides of the room or someone, you know, yeah. where people sit is and stand can be a very powerful thing in terms of just the showing, establishing their relationship to each other. You've got, particularly with TVCs, you've got 30 seconds to establish characters, a plot, a beginning, a middle, and end, mm-hmm. you know, and have some fun hopefully along the way. It's very, very hard to do that without trying every single shot needs to do five things you don't have enough time to set up a character so every shot has to try and kind of help you tell something about that person so yeah you don't have enough time to set up the plot every single shot has to kind of help you with that it can't just all come from the words yeah 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 the first step is is the, the big one is is writing the treatment as much as i absolutely hate the process it's a, <laughs> it's unfortunate sort of do you do step. that do you do that on a longer form project mm. uh yeah yeah it's more i'd probably more call it more of a director's overview mm-hmm. and i like to even just title it that way so people aren't expecting the shot by shot breakdowns it's more like we just talk about the style of the piece and you know give some reference and uh give uh yeah an overview of of how you will approach it sort of strategically or or, or practically uh, rather than specific stuff because generally if it's such a long form thing or you know there's obviously far too much to say but also there's a lot to evolve that's going to happen after the treatment thing generally the treatment's like a bit of a pitch thing so they're either trying to work out for a short thing how you're going to do it or for a longer thing they're trying to work out what is this going to be for a longer thing it's less structure but more about the general style i suppose can you walk me through maybe a little bit of your process through something more people might have seen like moving day, you know, especially given that that has tons that of visual very effects. structured yeah. and boarded up because of its VFX um, nature. Breaking it down to storyboards is very important for VFX because but you, you also have to... a little kid in it too. So you, yes, so you have to have the freedom. We have to work out. Well, we have to work out what can we get away without. You know, the time on set is very structured and and very much governed by government bodies who say a child of this certain age can only be on set for this long and in front of camera for this long and and for every shot you want to work out 
okay, we've got this foreground element, the background element. What do we need for this? You know, is this a green screen? Is this a background plate? Does this need to be a plate? To, you know, what, you know, work out what the elements are, how you actually achieve it. So the storyboarding thing for, for that one particular was paramount going in, going into it and because it actually helps you then schedule the job mm-hmm. and structure the production and how much of this is going to be green screen. When you work out every frame, you work out gee we've got 20 green screen shots does that mean then we need two days in green screen or one or you know it's almost you almost need to board it before you can then even schedule it before you can even then budget it so how many days did you guys shoot that for it was a bit fractured partly because of availabilities of crew and availabilities of the location and available which is a major part of the um a character almost in itself in in the film and we had green screen elements and like wire work and stuff so it's probably maybe two days, two or three days at the house. Mm-hmm. And then a day in, and which was not enough, but a day in, in green screen with kind of wire work and, and shooting plates and things. And that just by the sheer act of having to light things and green screen and props and wire work and stuff is a complete time tunnel. So whatever mm-hmm. day, if you think you need a day, get two. You know, or aim for more than you think, because it's yeah, that's that's a real time sink. Uh, so it probably was about five or six days all up, you know, broken around. But we were working pretty quickly because we had to with our little girl. She was only on on set for a few hours every day, and and not just her limited time, but her limited uh, attention span. Yeah, yeah, because it looks like she's having a lot of fun, but if yes, you've ever worked with little kids, it is particularly her because we we ended up choosing her for. You know, I was after the kind of Amelie kind of little pixie-ish yeah. kind of really, and she was way younger than I intended, but we 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 just loved her so much that we thought, okay, she's hard to work with, not, not in the bad way, but she's, you know, she needs work. She needs she's to a be nursed. Kid. Every shot yeah. needs to be nursed. We had older kids and they were less work, so it's always that balance with kids or with anybody, I suppose, is like you want to have the cute value and the, you know, the sense of wonder and, and the the sort of wide-eyed interestedness Mm. and that happens with younger kids but by going younger you lose control yeah so if you want to go with older kids you can get much more control and they'll do with more and they'll have a better intention span they get tired less and all that sort of stuff but you do lose that kind of cute factor or that sort of one worldly wonder thing and you can get away with less just just from a plot wise little kids you can almost get them to do anything in the script and you kind of think well it's a little kid they're, they're going to do whatever but the older kids get you kind of think ah that kid would never do that <laughs> you know come on kids are pretty smart yeah and it's always a payoff I guess, well you made the right choice if for nothing else just the shot of her with that flamethrower <laughs> it was hysterical <laughs> and even that flamethrower was a, a complete prop i think she kind of was a bit timid about she's a very timid girl almost very sort of timid about being on set and would find any excuse not to do a shot like oh the strap is itching me or oh, this man. is too heavy or you know just already being a little bit of not a prima donna but she was it was more from the point of view that she was kind of anxious about being there and she could find any reason to not be in front of the camera i've worked with grown-up actors who do the same stuff yeah so. exactly right i don't think she was being a prima donna it was just like it was more from like i don't really want to do this and can we hurry up and so we had to kind of whole re-engineer the whole spray gun the, the whole flamethrower yeah. And we also, because she was so young, we actually lost a few other actresses because 
of the content like you know the parents didn't want them once they found what? they didn't want to you know you can't kill fairies and i don't like the content and it's very mean-spirited and what stuff. well from a board point of view when yeah. you you know there's so much of the tone of that film that you don't get in necessary in the storyboards yeah. you know which when you see it can be a reaction and an expression and something and the music and the pace and the, can make it upbeat yeah. as a storyboard it could that could come definitely come across as being a like you know rambo unless you get the fun at the end yeah the whole rambo bit could be your a main takeout so we lost a couple of kids because parents said actually no i don't think so well you, but you to, probably don't want those parents on set yeah. for that shoot then anyway yeah but to have that's right to have you able to have darcy that we mm-hmm. did we had to have certain the parents were very very cool but they said look you know let's be nice about this it's not a it's not a flamethrower it's a bubble blower we're not killing fairies we're you know because half of them were sometimes like a little dot on a stick that she was mm-hmm. just looking at you had to kind of you play that game with you them. had to kind of play the game this is what we're going to do today we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna but did, did she see the final product yes 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 and she came to a few festival things and a few screenings and yeah. a few opens and she saw i was very concerned that when she saw it she would completely freak out <laughs> and i was worried that when she first saw it what would she think and of course she was just like completely really cruisy parents and uh-huh. you know she came from like a dance background and her mum was a dance teacher and stuff so it ended up how we ended up you know, like you have to find the process and the process for Darcy was everything almost became like a dance move and I kind of had this the very best kind of version of a stage mom in that when we weren't shooting she would be doing the dance teaching kind of thing you know oh, like, that's cool so we could almost like you'd make every scene right when you rather like run here and point here and look it was kind of like step one two and turn one two and you could kind <laughs> of turn it into a a little bit of a, a choreograph thing because that natural. was because that was her 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 her, her way but she comes across very natural in the film she doesn't come across like sometimes when you watch a child actor they're like okay now i walk over here okay now i turn my head but yes, you, you don't yeah. get that sense and i think that's also partly again the reacting not acting thing yeah that, that i'm i'm you know when she's looking at stuff we've got people we've got dollies on sticks we've got stuff on floating uh. out of frame i'm i'm bashing stuff to make a loud noise like <laughs> you know like when you when you hear the noise that's when this is happening so i would have like a you know, whatever just get a, a cooler box and whack it as a reaction and, and and we'd have something on a stick and you know and i'd be all the whole time it's a good thing that it's not a dialogue driven thing because i'm talking over the top look behind you it's coming what's that noise can you listen look look can you can you turn around now turn around mm-hmm. you know just constantly what is it is it over there is it behind me where what you know you're kind of just prompting them the whole time so i think yeah it's a struggle and there's a lot of stuff where you just we don't have enough time to tick off all the boards let's just shoot a whole bunch we'll just steady cam around you and just just throw <laughs> balls at her and she can just hit them and you know sometimes we, we don't have the chance to do these 10 boards we're just yeah. going to shoot some random stuff and cut it together and you know half of what you're seeing as as brilliance is just good editing and yeah just cutting out a lot of bad bits but i think i think moving day is also a good example of a film where even hearing you tell the stories of making it it's all about creating this environment for this little girl that can be as real for her as possible yeah and yet at the same time it has a real lush beautiful very photographic look to yeah. it. It doesn't, it doesn't, again, I'm not down on Paul Greengrass. I love his movies, yes. but it, it doesn't have, yes. it no, doesn't have that. We're dropped into the action. I want to ask a little bit about um, film and I think I know what your answer is, but um, what, what do you miss from the film days? Hmm. Well, actually having someone who laced the physically laced it, carried it around, dragged it through customs, hand inspections in black bags, keeping it cold, 
keeping the stock level of a certain you know we need to have this many roles of this speed film and this many roles of this speed film and we need to book the couriers in time to get more if we're running out of particular stock and having to manage it and fridge and cut you know not a lot i don't miss much (laughs) (laughs) but uh i mean now i find when i you know i come close to a film camera i just instinctively just want to go and hug it and just want to give me a roll of film i don't care if it's dead i just want (laughs) to lace it i just want to put some celluloid through it and just touch it and so is that more uh, reconnecting with your youth it's just it's just reconnecting (laughs) with the muscle memory of the whole thing and and, then the analogness of it um hmm what do i miss i think i guess there is a lot to be said for the when we run out of film we've run out of film we can't do anymore that's it sorry i've got it we love it thank you agency don't ask me to do anymore because oh oops we ran out of film (laughs) you know um i mean i guess there's still stuff can go wrong but you know ari made cameras that and same with Panavision, but they made cameras that you take them out of the box, you plug in a battery, they fucking work. Mm-hmm. You know, those cameras work. Ari make the like military spec thing and still doing it today in the digital world, luckily. But generally, there is something about the bulletproof going into the war zone thing that you don't need a backup 5D or whatever. You know, you just, you had that camera and that was it. And there is definitely some i guess that is something to be missed sometimes you don't have the technical fartassing that goes on it was definitely a two system thing where yeah. sound is recorded over there and vision is recorded over there and never the twain shall meet and everyone you know you turn on a camera an ARRI camera and it runs and it records things and it works and there's that bulletproof kind of uh, thing i suppose that is as it can't you know, it's sometimes missing we get a bit technical about and guilty completely you know yeah. hand on hand hand up I, i'm i'm guilty you know getting in and out of planes and all that kind of stuff and getting in and out of borders and customs and things it's like it's a freaking pain in the ass film can be wonderful and looks lovely and but we are we're getting to the point where we can replicate it visually yeah and certainly logistically is it's it's not easy you know getting shooting in a foreign country say where there is no labs you got to get unprocessed film out of there without being x-rayed and kept you know not you know keeping coolish and 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 you know not knowing what your rushes were until a day after you land or whatever you know and just the sheer weight of lugging it around and waiting for it to be loaded and oh sorry we've shot so much film that the loaders can't keep up we all now have to stop work and wait for it to to you know for them to to, to catch up so i'm kind of with you i've talked to some people who started within the last eight ten years yeah and they've never shot film they're like i'd like to shoot film sometime i'm like yeah i think you'd like to have shot film yeah exactly i don't think that you really would love the, the feeling of uh (laughs) <laughs> like yeah. on my senior thesis film in college the camera assistant loaded we were shooting on an SR2 and he loaded the magazine but he didn't latch it properly and they put a brand new roll of film on there chunk yeah. yeah. and the door just kind of went and it was like and it's like there went $120 that yeah. I had to wait tables for however many hours to, to make Yeah, and uh, uh, anyway yeah yeah I think I'd love to have my last film shoot again because then i would have appreciated it more i really <laughs> want to try and somehow find a shoot that's got the budget to do while there is still film around and while yeah. there's still a lab open to process it to do my last film shoot and relish it 
and appreciate it and absorb that process because I probably have already done my last film shoot and I can't go back and have that again and, and you know, yeah. sort of sort of mourn over it. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> I kind of hate it, but it's a love-hate thing in a way. So I really only have one other question and kind of like your film thing. I'm like, the question that I think probably is on everybody's mind as they're listening to this kind of a podcast is like, if you were starting out today, what advice would you like to have? Mm. Like, oh, what, what would you say to God. somebody who's starting right today? That is so hard. Because when I got into film school, like the criteria for it was it was do you have color the color blindness test and and um you know show us a few slides that you've shot and that was great hey you're in nowadays you pretty much have to be steven soderbergh to even get in the door of a film school you have to sort of be so experienced i think it's i know you know it sounds probably hackneyed kind of thing to say but just get out and just 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 pick up it's so easy to and cheap to pick up a camera now just go out and shoot something but try and do a story for god's sake get people involved have humans even if you're just going to do a doco you know make sure it's about humans and not necessarily about a time-lapse montage you know people people like to see human faces and you know human stories and you know you can just go even if it's just pick up a camera Get a cheap, fast 50 mil lens and and whack it on, you know, borrow someone's 5D Mark II and go out and just find what's on an interesting local event in your area and go out and document that. Because just the process of documenting, even if it's not necessarily a scripted story, you still then need to, you will, you will be forced into somehow trying to make or you will learn about doing a beginning and a middle and an end you know what's what like even like 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 the icebergs thing you kind of have the preparation of it and what is going on here this is really unusual and then it all happens and then the fun afterwards you know it's kind of like documenting an event that and then and then by choosing your shots and kind of working out how, and through editing as well you can, you can make a beginning in the middle and an end by editing you can choose something you shot as your very last shot but it might be perfect as your opening shot yeah create that sort of build it up what's happening you know and then review release the tension and you know and you can do that and and it's a great learning thing to shoot learn what coverage you need even in something that's happening you don't have any control over learning how to shoot coverage that will give you that story later even as i say you don't have any control over it that's probably the most fun you'll have in your whole career is getting out there where no one's telling you what to do and you're just you're just you know you're doing it for the fun of it and not to pay the mortgage so that was jason wingrove recorded back in april of 2013 at the nab convention Thank you for your patience, Jason. I know you've uh, you've sent me one or two messages saying, hey, is that ever, ever going to be heard by anyone? And the answer finally is yes. At long last. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Wherever you are. So in every episode, we're going to be uh, doing uh, a little preview of our next guest, and we're doing it in the form of a uh, war story. A war story is a critical moment in the life of the cinematographer, a strong moment, a horrific moment, and horrific moment, a turning point. Of one way or another. Could be heroic. Could be heroic. Could be inspirational. In fact, the one that we have this week is quite inspirational. It's from our cinematographer who we will be featuring in our next episode, Chris Coleman. Chris Coleman ASC. 
Chris Komen, ASC. I think Chris Chris was a really sweet guy. He gave us a lot of time. He gave us a lot of great insight. And uh, here is his war story. And now, war stories. At 7 o'clock one morning, my phone rang, and I answered it. And it was my father who asked me um, you know, if he had woken me up. And I said, no, I'm just getting home. I've been shooting all night. And he said, what are you doing? Were you shooting all night? And I said, yes, I was shooting all night. I was shooting Phantasm 3. And we were shooting nights. It's a horror film. So I was just getting home, and I had to go to sleep. And I said, it's great to hear from you. I can't really talk much. I kind of need to get to bed. I have a huge day tomorrow, and I'm really way over my head. And, of course, he wanted to know what I was doing. So I told him, and this is the hearse stunt. The pink hearse hits the pipe ramp, and the movie hits the boulder and goes flying through the air. So we were doing a pipe ramp jump. I had never done that before. And I think, to record, it's still the longest pipe ramp jump ever accomplished. So I told him that. I said, I have five cameras. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm really nervous. I need to get some sleep, and I go to go find the location. And he was in Maine calling me, so I said goodnight, and I went to bed. A couple hours later, I got up, drove out to Malibu Highway, uh, or Mulholland Highway. We have about six hours to get ready. The stunt guys are figuring out where the ramp's going to go and bolting the pipe ramp into the ground and making some changes. I'm getting the lights in place with the electrical crew, figuring out which cameras are going to be at what frame rates and where they're going to be positioned. And the stunt coordinator draws this diagram, and he says, the car's going to hit the ramp at 55 miles an hour, and it's going to land here. And he shows me exactly where it's going to land. So I put a camera in a crash box exactly there, thinking the car's going to come down and right on the camera is going to be fantastic. Of course, as we're getting ready, one of the lights goes out, big 12K goes out, and all of a sudden now I have one light instead of two. And of course, it's not where I want it, so I have to move it, and we can't get it to work. During all this, there's a road inspector from the county who was drinking maybe bourbon, it smelled like. <laughs> and he was he was very adamant that at 10 o'clock, we were done. So we had till 10 p.m. If that car was not in the air and on the ground at 10 p.m., we were done. The plan is, of the five cameras, there's one that's kind of ways down the road on a long lens shooting back towards the car. So the car's going to come flying towards that camera. The idea is that we're far enough away that it's going to be fine. But the also the idea is that should the car land on its wheels, which is possible, and it starts coming towards us, the double safety is that there's a van standing by that's supposed to drive out and get between the speeding hearse coming towards me on the camera and me. <laughs> so this van's going to like be a uh, demolition derby with the hearse. And additionally, there's a stunt guy who's harnessed in to this hillside next to you. And he says, if the, car, if the car's coming towards you, I'm going to grab you and we're going to jump. And I said, well, shouldn't I be in a harness <laughs> and tied in? He said, I got you. I'm a kind of a big guy. I thought, I don't think you're going to be able to hold me. I think this is a really bad idea. But I'm young and kind of stupid, naive, so I, I go along with it. So we're all getting ready, and everything's set. I start walking to my camera to man it. And there's a crowd is formed, because obviously all the neighbors or people out there want to see what's going on. We have, you know, there's lights and there's a lot of vehicles, and they know there's something big happening because we have the road blocked off. So the AD says, you know, excuse me, folks, you guys have to be over behind the van. At the very least, they all have to be on the other side of the van. But there's a guy there with a video camera kind of shooting. He's kind of in my face, and I'm trying to be a little nervous, and I'm going to get ready to do this shot. We have one take. We have one. We have two hearses, one we can destroy and one we need for the rest of the movie. I'm getting ready, and I said, excuse me, sir, you have to go with everybody else. And he lowers the camera, and it was my father, who 12 hours before, 10 hours before, was in Maine. I don't know how he found it, how he found me. 
I don't think I ever asked her. Maybe he didn't tell me, or maybe I've forgotten, but I was just floored. We did the shot. It was kind of spectacular. The car totally overshot the crash cam because even though he's supposed to hit the ramp at 55 miles an hour, he probably hit it closer to 70. So he went flying. Car crashes, lands, and rolls. It's filling my frame. And all I can think of is, you know, is that stunt guy going to really pull me out? Because all I have is car in my frame. I think I'm about to get run over, but I'm, I'm holding on for dear life shooting. Finally, I hear cut called. I look up and the car's pretty far away. It was okay. I mean, it wasn't that close. Bob Ivey, who was the stunt driver, was in the car when he did this. He said he blacked out pretty much as soon as he hit the ramp. And so when he landed, they checked him first thing. We checked him, made sure he was okay. And they actually took him to a hospital and have him checked out by a doctor. And everything was great. Like the wind was knocked out of us. It was exhausting, the, the buildup and the aftermath. And my dad, he had his uh, VHS camcorder with him, probably VHSC or something. He said, I got the whole thing on tape because we had no video assist. We're like, well, we hope that was good. We, we, whatever, we had no video assist. He goes, I got the whole thing here. I got it all on tape. I said, really, let's watch it. So Don came over and I uh, rewound the tape a bit. We're all kind of crowding around, just the three of us, Don, my father, and myself, we're crowding around the viewfinder. And you see the car coming towards us and it goes up in the air. And as soon as it goes in the air, the camera tilts to the ground and you hear my father say, holy shit. And I have a shot of the road and his foot. <laughs> We don't have any of the rest of the shot. But it was just, just, it's, you know. That for me was such a significant moment because the fact that he would somehow find his way out there and come out all that way so quickly without announcing it. And then he spent about a week with me, I guess, and every night he would kind of hang out and sleep in my car and then come out and check out what we were doing and then go take a cat nap. And, you know, he's... Not a young man. At the time, he was probably, he was in his 60s for sure, but not terribly old either, but it was not his lifestyle. And so it, it meant a lot to me that he came out. After all the years of, especially after all the years of struggling and uh, all the times of being told, you know, I should maybe think about what else I might do with my life, go to law school or whatever, to have him show up it just was very special. And, and uh, I always get choked up when I think about that. So we've arrived at the end of our show. I hope you're still with us. In every episode, we're going to do what we call short ends, which is our obsession of the week. What what you got for us this week, Ilya? Uh, okay, my obsession of the week is the movie Nebraska. I think Nebraska is probably the best movie of 2013. Uh, I've seen just about all of the uh, big movies of the year, so I'm I'm not saying that lightly. I think Nebraska is spectacular. It also has, in my opinion, some of the best cinematography and it's cinematography that you don't get to see every day. In fact, uh, I don't know how many black and white movies have been shot uh, in the past decade, but I gotta believe it's not very many. This is a black and white movie that was shot on an Alexa, uh, and I think it predates the monochrome Alexa, which is just now uh, available for people out there. Monochrome Alexa, really? Monochrome Alexa. It actually uh, has the ability to do uh, infrared as well, and some amazing, amazing, you know, uh, uh, dark skies and white foliage and all of that kind of stuff if you add the right filtration. But News it's to a, me, man. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a for rental item only. It only rents out of... Uh, airy directly and uh it's not available for sale but boy does it look spectacular i don't believe that's what was used on nebraska i believe it was just a a typical alexa although it was an alexa recorded an airy raw to a gemini uh 444 conversion design recorder that's as much tech as i'm going to go into it but i think that's pretty cool because that is kind of like the low budget way to get airy raw versus the codex recorder or some of the other systems out there which are much larger and more expensive uh and it's a 
beautiful movie shot really well with some great performances. And if you have not seen Nebraska, I know it doesn't have, uh, you know, a lot of special effects. It doesn't have a lot of uh, big, big name, young, attractive celebrities. It is a spectacular movie and you should totally go see it. That's awesome. Point of trivia, by the way. Um, I know uh, Alexander Payne's casting director, his name's John Jackson. And if you've seen Return of the Living Dead, the Dan O'Bannon classic from, I believe, 1982, 83. John Jackson, Alexander Payne's casting director, is the zombie who asks for more paramedics. Wow. Wow. I, I, you know, I, my jaw is on the floor right now. I, I don't did not know that you knew that about the about his casting director. And all I can ask you now is, did you work on that movie? Did, how do how do you know this? Well, Return of the Living Dead is one of my favorite zombie movies. It might be the first zombie movie I ever saw that had running zombies. And uh, and it's hilarious. It's written by Dan O'Bannon, written and directed by Dan O'Bannon, the guy who created Alien. Um, and it's, if you haven't seen Return of the Living Dead, it's awesome. This is not my short end, by the way. Oh, okay. But, but uh, I actually worked with John on a, on a project, and he's a fantastic casting director, but when he came out here, like a lot of casting directors, he came out here to be an actor. Hmm. And... Uh, so he he plays that zombie and like a friend of mine actually has a has a a friend of mine has a t-shirt that says send more paramedics which is his quote. <laughs> I took a picture on my iPhone and sent it to him on 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 Facebook. I mean it's it's iconic amongst horror nerds like myself. I just realized how dumb it was for me to say that did you work on that if that's the first, you know, zombie no. film that you saw. You said 82? Yeah, and I wouldn't have been old enough to um, have even seen it at the to, time to drive or you know have pubic hair or, or things. So uh, <laughs> when that movie came out, I was I was pretty young. Wow, do you think you could get him on the show, JJ? Bet I, I bet if he's in town, I bet he would do it. That would be awesome. He's a nice guy. My short end is the Hollywood Camera Work Shot Designer app. I would ask that everybody. Uh, kindly ignore that the word Hollywood is in the name of, of their app and check it out. Uh, f- since I was in film school, I've always broken scenes down by making overheads and using a legal pad and putting stupid little V symbols where the camera is supposed to be in arrows and stuff like that. And it always was chicken scratch that only I could decipher. And it wasn't until I found the Hollywood camera work uh, shot designer app that I found a, a, an easy, fast, super cheap way to do it in a way that I could distribute it to everybody and they would all immediately know what the hell I was doing. When you say super cheap, is this a free app? There is a free version of the app wow. and you can use it. Wow. Uh, and it, and I, and I used it for a shoot on the, on the free version. And then if you decide to buy the pro version, it's 20 bucks. And when you get the $20 version, you, ha- you get an install for your Mac or PC uh, for whatever phone or tablet you have. And they make it for, I think virtually every phone and tablet. I know at least uh, all Apple and iOS devices plus all Droid devices are supported and they sync via Dropbox. And when you're wow. done, as you're, as you're using this app, it builds a shot list for you that you can then export as an Excel spreadsheet or as a PDF with your with your diagram. And you can also um, uh, just send it out as a JPEG so people can so everybody can see. Uh, where it is, it's very fast and easy and efficient. In fact, this past week I was uh, on a scout for a project I'm going to be second unit directing, and I kind of thought, why don't I use this? And we were we were in multiple locations, a few of them houses, and I'm no architect, but I was able to very quickly 
do a, a floor plan of the whole house so that the first unit director, if he should choose to use it, and definitely I could say, can, can communicate to everybody and say, okay, camera position here, camera position there, camera position here, camera position there. And, uh, you know, actor walks in this way, actor walks out that way, however you want to do it. Um, and it can go into as much or as little detail as you feel like giving people. That's pretty cool. Uh, not too many people are doing apps like that for Android. And uh, I know that you are a iPhone person and I am, you know, on the on the dark side. I have the Android here, but uh, I will actually download that for free and check it out because that sounds pretty damn cool. Although this sounds like a giant commercial for that product and we're in no way associated with that that i'm, app I'm no way affiliated way. although i i will admit i uh they were looking for free beta testers and i joined their beta team because i thought it was such a cool app huh. but yeah i don't know the guy never met him in person i just think it's a cool app there are things that they have promised that they will add to it like script integration which i hope they eventually get around to doing um but honestly just the way it is i use it on every shoot that i ever do and it's the most useful thing ever well, you know what? Uh, we're probably going to go to Vegas for NAB. And you said that the guy who wrote this thing or published it is in Vegas. I think he is. Well, maybe he'll come on the show. I would love to get that guy on the show. Okay, cool. Well, that app actually sounds pretty awesome. And I think I would try it uh, just for the fact that it's free and I have an Android device. So spectacular. I will play around with that and, you know, maybe design an overhead. Yes, I think you'll dig it. Nice. So uh, that should wrap us up here for episode one, the cautionary tale slash Jason Wingrove interview of the cinematography podcast. Yeah. And, and also the cool plug for Nebraska and the mouthful app. What is that called? The Hollywood. <laughs> the Hollywood camera work shot designer app. You know, it sounds much cheesier when I put on my morning zoo <laughs> voice to say it. Assuming we have the ability to do so, we'll put a link to all of our short ends on the cinematography podcast website. We do have the technology. We do. Well, that's it. Yeah, that's episode one of the Cinematography Podcast. Long time coming. Really glad that uh, it's here. Seven years in the making. And uh, the good news is there's a whole bunch of new episodes coming up soon. Here we're going to have uh, another six, at least in the coming weeks, and probably another dozen or so behind that. That'll be great. So, uh, Ilya, where can people find you online? Of course, you can find me here at uh, hotrodcameras.com. And Ben, where can they find you? I'm at benrockonline.com. And you can also follow me at Twitter at Neptune Salad. Hey, who did the music for the show? Uh, the music is done by my good friend Kaze Alatracci. You can check him out at musicbykaze.com. He's awesome and totally available for music for, for, for you as well. For pay. Yes, Please pay for, him. Yes, give him lots of money. So thank you everybody for listening and we'll see you next episode. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>